Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Tuesday, March the 13th, 2012. And this is episode 858 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm really happy. I got another uh, best-selling author uh, coming on the show here. And I don't think a few years ago we would have been able to do stuff like this. Uh, but this person's name is Lierre Keith. And she is uh, a big fan of the paleo lifestyle and uh, wrote the book The Vegetarian Myth. I know some of you right now might be rolling your eyes and going, oh no, more on this. I think you'll learn a lot today if you listen to the show about some of the misconceptions about health and what makes us healthy and some of the real history behind why we are told what we're told. And remember, if you can't have your ideas challenged and consider the challenge then you're not very open-minded. I also want to point out, Lier is a little bit different than me uh, politically. And I think it's going to be an interesting interview to hear how well we can get along, even with some of those political differences. Anyway, again, her book is The Vegetarian Myth. We'll have her on in just a second. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. And I got an announcement for you right before I bring Lier on. Maybe you guys can help me out with something, and uh, we'll, we'll see if it comes in today anyway. Um First up today, KnifeKits.com. You know, what I love about KnifeKits is anyone can learn to make knives with KnifeKits.com. You can go there and you basically get the blade. It's already forged, already shaped, already ready to go. It needs final sharpening. It needs handle material. It needs maybe some bolsters. If you're not even sure how to do that much, well, then you can get a DVD or a book that will tell you how. Uh, and you can you can pick your own handle material and make something custom and do just about any kind of knife you could think of in the world. Let's say you're a master bladesmith and you can you can make blades from you know raw material and and you're that kind of a bladesmith. Well, guess what? Uh, they can still help you because you can get some of the most exotic and amazing materials for making your knives you'll ever find at KnifeKits.com. From beginner to the advanced bladesmith. Everybody that wants to know how to make knives or wants to make better knives should check out KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth gives you all the stuff you need to live your tactical lifestyle, man. Uh, in fact, I have uh, a couple uh, titanium tactical sporks coming in from uh, Sawtooth. I'm really excited about those. You know, they've been here a long time. I think all of our sponsors have been here a long time. Uh, so, you know, be loyal to our sponsors, Sawtooth, uh, Knife Kits, all of them. I just want to say, say something right here about the longevity of our sponsors. People don't believe me when they contact me and go, Jack, we want to buy advertising on your show. And I go, I don't have anything to sell you. They think I'm just trying to up the cost or something. I don't. And I, the, the, the waiting list is extreme. I just had to help Rob Gray the other day from AOCS working on bringing the copper coins back and putting together a copper coin store for you guys. And uh, I had to tell him, Rob, I, I, can't, I can't sell you advertising. And he's like, well, put me on the list. I'm like... Well, I can, but, you know, it's, man, you know, and the, that loyalty, uh, folks, from the sponsors, try to repay it when you can. When you need something, check to see if one of them offers it before you buy it somewhere like Amazon. If it's a dollar or two more, hey, what's their loyalty worth to you? Just a thought. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. There's over 31 companies now. They do discounts for the MSB. I want to point something out. Not every single sponsor does something for the MSB. Most of them do. Some of them, because of the margins or whatever, they just can't. Uh, but uh, most of them do. I just want to be clear about that. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Uh, please email me. 
prior to joining, I will give you a special national service discount code uh, to thank you for your service. Okay, uh, before I get into uh, introducing, introducing Lair, I wanted to real quick um, let you guys know that it looks like tomorrow I'll be on GBTV again. I was on uh, with one of the other hosts on Friday, and that went really well, and they really liked what I had to say. Uh, so I may be on with Glenn in studio tomorrow live on GBTV. And that'll just be awesome. They asked me if while I was there, I uh, and this is up in the air right now. We're not firm booked on it yet, but we're going to sure try to make it happen. But they asked me while I was there, could I demonstrate the use of a ham radio? Now, in spite of the fact that you guys in the audience have been on my back, especially you hams, for a long time, I have not taken the uh, course or the test and gotten certified. I actually know how, but of course you know that using a ham without a call sign and without your license would be illegal. So I told them I would, you know, graciously decline to do that part of the interview. And they wanted to know if I knew anybody that could. So I put out on the blog and Facebook this morning, and I'm putting out on the air now. We only need one. We need somebody that can be in Dallas tomorrow afternoon. I think the hours are between like two and six would be somewhere in there would be the availability they would need. Obviously, this would be best for somebody that's local to the area that has a ham license and can break away to do that. If that's you, please email me, and I will forward your info on to the producer, and uh, you guys can take it from there. Those of you who might be a little bit media shy, you know, nobody distrusts media more than me. Uh, the staff of GBTV has been 100% professional with me. Uh, they didn't do anything during my interview to sensationalize everything. Prepping is big with Glenn, so I do trust that they're going to do a fair uh, assessment of prepping. The whole, the whole show tomorrow is themed with survival and preparedness, and it's good to have somebody out there that's on our side in the media, especially with the cloud of Glenn Beck. And if you get, if you do come in and you get to demonstrate the ham radio, you get to meet Glenn, you get to meet me on the same day. That should be kind of fun. I know I'm really looking forward to meeting Glenn. He's been a big inspiration to me. Uh, even though I don't always agree with everything he has to say, and he's actually made me angry a few times, uh, I really respect the work that he does. So, uh, if you qualify, ham radio operator can be in Dallas, Texas tomorrow between two and six. Go in studio and be on GBTV. Get in touch with me and I will again, uh, get this, uh, over to their producer for you. All right, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I want to bring on our guest now, Lier Keith. And uh, I first found out about her on Peak Moment Television. And, of course, Peak Moment's big on the carbon sequestering and all that, and I'm not. And uh, but So there are some political differences. But she was on to discuss the vegetarian myth, the myth that vegetarian is the healthiest way to live, what it was like being a vegan, how vegans become attached to that, and the actual science and research that's been done to show that you know a diet that's heavy in fat and protein is a lot healthier for you. And as I listened to this interview of about 30 minutes, I'm like, I have got to get this lady on TSP. I didn't know if she would come. I didn't know, I mean, I figured she might look at the name, and, and I know some of her politics are very different than, than mine, et cetera. And, but it was actually, she was very gracious, agreed to come on, and uh, we had a great interview. And uh, I just, like I said, when I heard her speak, I'm like, i got to bring her on for the audience. So, folks, uh, without further ado, uh, Lier, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me on. I, I wanted to have you on because, as I was telling you when we were chatting off the air, uh, I have had great success by getting starches and, and modern agricultural products out of my diet. I eat primarily leafy green and other style vegetables, meats and, and natural fats now. And it's, it's taken like 80 pounds off of my frame and I feel 100% better. 
and we've had tremendous numbers of people in the audience who have tried it. And we just had somebody on last week who was saying that when she did it, she lost chronic pain problems she had her whole life. And you have this book called The Vegetarian Myth. And when I found out about that book and saw your interview, I really wanted you to have, have you on. But I think a lot of people out there believe that like vegetarianism, veganism is what we need to save the planet. And you completely disagree with that, as do I. Do you want to kind of open up with why you feel that way? Yeah, and just a tiny bit about my background. I was actually a vegan for 20 years. So I come to these ideas from the background of having been very deeply inside that vegetarian world. So I understand their concerns and I understand where they're coming from. Um, because it's, you know, those were, that, that was my community for 20 years. So you couldn't have been any further into that than I was at one point. Um, and I always like to try to emphasize that it's not the underlying ethics of vegetarianism that are the problem. Because, you know, ideas about compassion and sustainability and justice and questioning human hubris, those are really the core values that we need to get to that better world that I think we're all after. So it's not the values that are the problem. And I see the problem as, as one of basically information. Um, and the, the informational ignorance is, is really profound across our culture. And we really need to be questioning agriculture itself. And that's where the whole thing falls apart for me. Um, I mean, up to a certain kind of a certain level, you know, some of the critiques that, that vegetarians might make of our food system are perfectly accurate, but they're just not going far enough. And we really need to understand what agriculture is. So in very blunt terms, you know, you take a piece of land and you clear every living thing off it, then you plant it to human use. And that's what agriculture is. So it's an inherently destructive process. And you refer to that as biocide, right? Because you basically... Yeah, it is. It's, it's biotic cleansing. Um, because you're removing every living creature from that land. And I mean down to the bacteria. Um, so first of all, all of those plants and animals have nowhere to go. So it's, it's meant mass extinction around the world. And in 10,000 years... Uh, that's what we've seen. And at this point, 200 species are going extinct every single day. And it's bec ultimately because of the, this agricultural lifeway. Um, so it's, it's grim for the, for the other creatures who need a home as well because we've cleared them off their homes. They've got nowhere to live. Um, and then the other problem is that we're destroying the topsoil. And every time you do this process called agriculture, you know, you're exposing that soil when you clear the land. And then... It, it's it like us. It dies when it's exposed. So, uh, you know, through through rain and through wind and through sun, uh, the the soil simply erodes and it's turned to dust. And this is why you have human-made deserts all around the world that are only increasing in size and scope every single year. And that's the reason is because agriculture is is inherently destructive. Um, and I want to point out that we owe our entire existence to six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Without that soil, there is no life on Earth. Um, and the creatures that really make it possible, of course, are the microorganisms, the bacteria. They are the ones who do the basic recycling of all those nutrient cycles. But it's the bacteria that are responsible for that. We can't see them with the naked eye, but every single animal is dependent on their existence. We wouldn't be here without them. And, you know, their main habitat is the soil. And every time we do agriculture, we're destroying them. So just to put a number on it, you know, one season of planting your basic row crops, so corn or soy or wheat or, you know, whatever, um, one season you can, you can destroy 2,000 years of topsoil. 
Um, so this is a huge form of, of drawdown. I mean, as an activity, it's, it's worse than anything else that humans have done to the planet. And that's what we're not questioning. Um, and so that's why these ideas about vegetarianism as saving the planet actually make no sense, because the basic foods that they're proposing are, in fact, inherently destructive to life on Earth. That's what I've always said, that, you know, it doesn't, I understand, first of all, anybody that's, and, and I'm not even, like, evangelical to the vegan community anymore. I'm like, if you want to know, you can find the answer, because they're like, I think you said, like, it becomes who they are, so they're very resistant to the information. I'm actually more concerned about the person that's the omnivore that, that listens to this message and goes heavily into things like eating corn and soy and wheat, because they think it's sustainable, but it doesn't matter if I grow the grain and feed it to a cow or I grow the grain and eat it directly, I'm still destroying the land with the agricultural process. Yes, that's exactly the point. And, and, and that's so when, I, when somebody switches from protein based on, and we, we're going to get into the nutrition here in a minute, and I want to I have you talk about that, but protein from, an, from a cow to protein from a soybean, even if the protein were equivalent, which it is not in any way, shape, or form, it would still be doing all the damage that that, that person who's living that vegan or vegetarian lifestyle is concerned with preventing. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that we're not aware of that destruction, well, I think there's two reasons. One is that you know many humans have been doing this for 10,000 years, so it seems normal, it seems natural. You know, we, we, we don't even have an outside to stand you know, where we could look back and see it. I mean, it just surrounds us because we live in this agricultural world now, this agricultural society. So it's like questioning air, you know, or questioning God or, you know, questioning the cosmos because it just seems like the way things are. But it's one very specific human activity. And for the vast amount of our time on this planet, we didn't do it. Okay, it's only the last 10,000 years that anybody tried this as, you know, a way to support human beings. So that's one reason. It's just the time frame involved. You know, it just seems inevitable. It seems natural. Mm-hmm. But the other problem is that um, with, with, when you were talking about agriculture is that, um, the, um, you know, th- there's not – it's like the whole world has been covered with it now. So we sure. don't actually know what the world should look like. We have no mm-hmm. idea what it would look like if it wasn't there. We, I mean – um, I, I tried to explain it to people this way. When, when we first came to North America, and I mean Europeans did, it, a lot of been, has been made of the fact that the trees were so vast that a squirrel could go from the East Coast to the Mississippi without coming out of the canopy. But what everybody overlooks is that means that there was a root net under the soil that was also interconnected from the East Coast to the Mississippi River. And we can't even get our heads around to how that would actually look and what that would actually be like today. There's no photography from, you know, 14, 1500. Right. There's maps you can find online that just show you, you know, this is what, you know, what, it shows the United States, you know, the land mass, and then green. So that's where the trees were, you know, 1400 and now near 2000. And you see that 98% of the old growth forests are gone and 99% of the prairies are gone. They're just gone. They've been eradicated. Have you ever, I was going to ask you, it's kind of off the subject, but just to get your interpretation, if you've ever, have you ever actually been inside one of the few preserved pieces of old growth forest and noticed what that experience is like? Because for me, it was almost like being on another planet. It is another planet. It's a totally different world. Yes, I have been inside old growth forests, and it's just like nothing else. I mean, you realize that what you've seen your whole life is just scrub and twig. Because these trees are so vast. And then it's so sad when you think, 
it should be this way for mile after mile after mile, and all you can find are tiny little scraps of, you know, five giant trees, and then the rest is just, <laughs> you know, either been completely destroyed or what's come back is, you know, 20 years old, and it does not look like what a forest should. It's so our, our idea of forest... Whatever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, our idea of what a forest is just doesn't bear... It, it doesn't even begin, you know, to encompass how vast and how just amazing uh, those landscapes should be, those communities should be. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. Now, I, I wanted to kind of get you talking a little bit about the nutrition because we've been sold what I consider a bill of goods by our government that we should, it's I guess a plate now, it used to be a pyramid, and right. they spent like $9 million to change it from a pyramid to a plate for somebody to come up with a circle versus a, a triangle. <laughs> um, and, and they say still that obviously we should build our diet on grains and things like bread and that that's good for us. And I, I'd like you to explain a little bit from a nutritional standpoint and from a historical standpoint what happened to human health when we made that transition. The, you know, the, the history on this, um, the, the, the ancient history, was for me one of the most compelling things that helped change my mind you know, when I was sort of undergoing that transition away from being a vegan. And that is that for basically four million years, you know, humans and our, our direct ancestors we we were meat eaters, and there's no question that we were hunters. Um, and that, you know, four million years is a long time. That's many, many, many generations. And we know this for a bunch of different, there's a bunch of different ways that, that we know that this is true. One is the actual archaeological remains. Um, the bones and the teeth that remain from, from those hunter-gatherer years um, are very strong, and they're they're dense and they're tough. And they don't show evidence of disease. They may show evidence of injury. I mean, it's it's not an easy life, particularly to be hunting polar bear, say. But um, you know, so there's going to be breaks in the bones, but there's no evidence of disease. And then you hit agriculture, and immediately what happens is people shrink six inches in height. They start losing their teeth, which didn't happen before, and their bones are absolutely riddled with diseases. And there's a list of like 80 diseases that suddenly pop up that you, you just don't find before agriculture. Um, and some of the diseases are, are quite obvious, things like rheumatoid arthritis, which leave a very, very obvious, um, you know, fingerprint in, in the human skeleton. I mean, the, the bones are just, you know, the, you can see how the joints and the bones are just completely contorted by that process. Um, so there's all the diseases that spring up. There's the, the, that shrinkage in, in stature. Um, so clearly there's, you know, misery begins at this point. There's just a level of disease that's not seen before that. So how would you respond to the person that says, yeah, but when we went to agriculture, all of a sudden there were a lot, lot more people surviving. There were more of us, and civilization came along with agriculture. That's true, but I don't see that as a good thing. <laughs> um, civilization, is, it's a process of drawdown. Um, I mean, the, what civilization is, is people living... In cities, and that means that they're living in a density that requires the importation of resources. Okay, they've used up what their land has. So the the, the energy, the food, the water, it all has to come from somewhere else, right? That, that think about Manhattan. That little tiny island is no way going to support you know two million people. It's out of the question. So they have to import from somewhere else. And the problem is that your neighbors do not want to give up their land and their water and their trees and their food and their fish. And that means that agricultural societies always end up militarized. They always end up imperialistic. They are, they are always surrounded by conquered colonies. 
because they have to go out and get the supplies that they now require. And that's because they've used up their own. And that's what happens inevitably when you live at a density past which your land can't, can't support you. And that's what civilization is. So I don't see this as a good thing. It's, and then, you know, you end up with these hierarchical, hierarchical societies because um, the surplus of agriculture um, then lets you specialize and you end up with, you know, a few people on top and they're usually it's some variety of, um, you know, military plus religion, you know, plus hereditary monarchy. And then underneath that is that there's a military class and then underneath that there's usually, you know, the sort of uh, skilled tradespeople. But the vast majority of the people are slaves. So, you know, in ancient Athens, which is supposed to be the great birthplace of Western democracy, 90% of the people were slaves. Hmm. And you can trace that through all the way down. By the year 1800, um, you know, somewhere around 80% of the people alive on the planet, fully 80% of the human beings were living in some form of slavery, serfdom, or indentured servitude. Because that's what agriculture requires. It's backbreaking labor. So for anybody to have any kind of leisure time, the people who are going to do, quote, the civilized activities like music and art and whatever, um, they have to have slaves to do the work for them. Very, very different than your average hunter-gatherer. Um, hunter-gatherer societies, uh, they're you know, usually banned societies. They make decisions face-to-face, and they tend to be very egalitarian. And, and you, know, you can't say anything's ever true 100%, but more or less these are egalitarian societies. They don't have those kinds of rigid hierarchies, and they don't have an entire class of people whose job is war. And that's because they live within what their land base can provide. They don't need to be imperialists to get their basic foodstuffs. Very different than the agriculturalists who are always using up what they've got. Have you ever heard of something that's from the Native Americans, specifically in the northeastern United States tribal areas before intervention by Europeans, called the Great Law of Freedom? That one I haven't heard of, no. But I know that generally um, in indigenous cultures, there's a huge range of you know, personality traits and behaviors that are perfectly accepted. As long as you don't hurt anybody else, you're right. pretty much allowed to do what you want. Correct. Very, very different than the kinds of rigid rules and behaviors that, that we now live with um, under agricultural societies. I mean, there weren't written laws, for instance, until, you know, when, when people, when the main interaction you have with other people, it, when, when they're all strangers to each other, you end up having to have laws because that's the only way to get people to behave. Whereas if you know people your whole life and you know what, you know, basically if I do this to you, you're not going to like me and it's going to matter because I'm going to see you every day for the rest of our lives. Correct. Uh, you know, it means that people are um, generally nicer to each other. I mean, you sort of have to be to get along. Whereas Absolutely. when it's stranger interactions, you end up having these, um, you know, these, these laws that are essentially set in stone. They have to be. When, when this, this thing was, was part of a, a thing that basically kept peace amongst many tribes, and some people even believe that some of the uh, language in the Constitution actually comes from observation of it, but one of the big things is that no human should be subservient to another human. No person should ever own another person, and it was one of the big things that stimulated a lot of conflict uh, with with Native American tribes because they couldn't get their head around the fact that Europeans had slaves. It didn't even make sense to them that such a thing would exist. Yeah, and the other thing to note in the, in the history of all this is that um, a, a lot of the original uh, Europeans who came to the 13 colonies, um, especially if they were indentured servants of some sort, they would escape 
and go live with the Native Americans in the area. Correct. They would be accepted into the tribe. And or they would be if there was like a, a you know some kind of war that was happening. Many times there'd be hostages held on either side. And when it came time to do the hostage exchange, the Native Americans who were being held by the white people would run back to their tribe. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. the Europeans who were being held by the Native Americans had to be tied up to be. They didn't want to go back because they were so desperate not to go back because their treatment was so horrendous. Wow! You have to understand the life of an indentured servant. You literally had a legal responsibility that if your master's feet were cold, he was allowed to put them on your warm back. I mean, that's the level of just degradation that that people experienced as indentured servants. They could remove your teeth and sell them as dentures. We're talking about torture here. Wow! You know, permanent mutilation of people. Of course, they wanted to say with the Native Americans of, you know, they were treated like real human beings who had a say over. You know their life conditions and what you know what they were going to do, and nobody was going to take their teeth out. So um, yeah, I mean this was a, a constant thing you'll see in the history books about how you know the, the, the Europeans just would beg not to be taken back to their masters for more abuse. Unbelievable. That's something I did not know. Uh, some yeah. of the treatment I know, but I didn't know about the basically clinging to captivity because it was better than than alternate captivity. Yeah. I do want to get into the nutrition here a little sure. bit sure. because I think that's a big concern for people and they just can't get their head around the fact that bread's not good for you. <laughs> but you were talking when you were talking with Janae on Peak Moment about how in the absence of fat, many things that we need, the body can't even absorb or use. And we have to get the right kind of fat for that to happen. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's fat is just so good for us in so many ways, but it has to be the right kind of fat. Um, starting in around 1920, um, the technology had advanced to the point where the uh, grain that you know people were growing in the Midwest and whatnot, you know, mostly corn, um, the the technology had advanced to the point where oil could be extracted from that grain really easily. So it's basically these giant steel rollers. Um, could be used to press the the oil out of those grains, and and they do have a lot of oil in them. Um, Up to that point, people had certainly made oil out of things like corn, but they were used for industrial processes like paint and glue manufacture. Nobody ate them, and and that's the point to remember. Nobody ate industrial seed oils before that moment. Especially things like rapeseed and cottonseed oil. Those two just kind of boggle the mind that we consume that today. Cotton? I mean, people are nuts. <laughs> Not <laughs> edible, people. Um, so up until then, nobody ate them. So what happens is corporate America starts to rise to ascendancy, and they start grabbing control of the food supply, and it's way cheaper to use things like corn oil or soy oil uh, rather than traditional animal fats, which are indeed, you know, they, it takes time to produce them, and they, they are expensive, certainly compared to corn oil. So the food supply starts to be flooded with these cheap industrial oils. And what we see for the first time, you know, you follow that up about 20 years and there starts to be an uptick in heart disease. And these are diseases that had never been seen before on a mass scale. Um, and, and that's really what kicks it off is this, this introduction of corn oil in particular into the American diet. So, and then you can follow all these degenerative and um, chronic diseases. Um, and a, a, some of it has to just do with the cheap carbohydrate, but a lot of it has to do with those industrial seed oils. So I really want people to remember this concept that, you know, before 1920, nobody had ever eaten these. Everybody recognized you could make very good paint out of soy or corn. Nobody thought about eating them, okay? So for, in order for corporate America to keep making profit, of course, um, 
the seed oils are a big part of that, as well as that cheap carbohydrate food. Um, you know, the, the, mo- the biggest return on their dollar that they get is when we eat things like potato chips or, you know, bread or Twinkies or whatever. And that's for a number of reasons. One is the subsidies. So there's just billions of dollars every year go to subsidize those annual row crops. So wheat or corn or soy, um, they're just they're subsidized at this huge rate. So what that means, of course, is that the, the people who are actually producing them, the actual farmers, they can't make a living. Um, there are six corporations that control the world food supply, and I'm not being paranoid here. That is just literally true. There are That's six absolutely corporations. true. They, uh, they control like 80% of the grain market, which is to say they have a monopoly. There's no other word for this. When you have a monopoly, you can drive the price down, 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 and they're able to drive the price down below the cost of production. So no matter how hard those poor farmers work, they literally can't even make their costs back every year. And we've got crazy farm policy right now in the United States. Instead of dismantling this ridiculous system, the U.S. government, of course, is in the pocket of those corporations. So every year, our tax dollars kick in, and those subsidies pay the farmers so that they make just enough money to keep their heads above water. Um, But the corporations, of course, can buy that grain at this incredibly cheap price because of the subsidies. The money just goes right to the corporations, essentially. They shouldn't even bother to pass it through the pocketbooks of the farmers because it's just that's where it ends up. So because they can buy this stuff so cheaply, then they they take those cheap carbohydrates and they process them a little bit. And so now it's, quote, value added. And then they sell it back to us, the general, you know, the general public as things like potato chips or Twinkies or, you know, high fructose corn syrup for Coca-Cola. So it makes those foods incredibly cheap. I mean, they and I don't think what people realize is we pay for it twice. It's not really. Oh yes, we do. And we, we actually paid for it a third time in our health care bill. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so that's we're paying that's, again and again and again. And I want to say, you know, all sympathy needs to go to those poor farmers because they are essentially serfs to the corporations. Right. So they need our solidarity. This is a political battle, people, for our democracy, for our land, for our health, for our children. We need to be on their sides. It's not the farmer's fault. It's the corporation's fault. The number one cause of death right now in farm country is suicide. Okay, that's how grim it is right now in places like Iowa and Nebraska. So, you know, we need to make some solidarity with the people who are really at the, you know, got the boot on their necks here. Um, so anyway, that's... It's a huge problem that, that those people actually are legally prevented by all of this regulation from doing things a different way. I mean, one of my heroes in this movement is Joel Salatin. Yes. Does things sustainably and wonderfully and produces some of the highest quality stuff in the world. And he has had to fight government regulators that are supposedly concerned about our safety every step of the way. I just got to spend some time with him in New Hampshire at the Liberty Forum, and he was like, everything I did was basically illegal, and I had to find workarounds. And it seems to me like you keep saying, like, agriculture is the problem, but I don't hear you saying that growing food or farming is the problem. It's this industrial-based agriculture that's the problem. Yeah, and if you want to go – see, it depends how you define agriculture, because to me, the way that I define agriculture is uh, the annual row crops. So it's, you know, corn and wheat and soy and oats and whatever else. If you have to clear the land and then year after year you have to plow it to make this stuff grow, that's called agriculture. What Joel Salatin is doing, um, I would not call agriculture. I would call that pastoralism. And there are other ways that people get food from the land. One of them would be a pastoral system, which would be grass-based with ruminants. Um, Certainly hunter-gathering would be another way. Um, Any kind of permaculture 
And what makes those systems different is that they are built on a skeleton of perennial plants. So whether it's grass or whether it's trees or whether it's you know wetlands and rivers, it's the plants are there year after year after year. And that means the soil is protected. It means that the topsoil can grow every year. Um, it means you don't have to plow. It means you don't have to add any fertilizer. It's a closed loop. It fertilizes itself. Um, and it means that year after year, there are more species present. There's more bacteria present. There's more soil present. And, you know, you could go back 10, in 10,000 years, you could arrive on the same plot of land. The only difference would be more topsoil. And so those are the systems of, of food that that's what we did for 4 million years. We participated in those life cycles that were ultimately about more resilience for the land. And that's, you know, ultimately what I say we need to get back to. And so I adore Jill Salatin. I, that guy's amazing. I mean, he's really, you know, he's the prophet of, of where our, our, our food system needs to go. And he's just done such amazing thing on his land. His, they have to, they've had to raise the fence posts because they've grown so much soil that the fence posts weren't <laughs> high enough anymore. That is a miracle. People that need to understand awesome. what miracle he has pulled off on that land. And that's, that's what we need to be really doing. Awesome. Yeah, so that's not agriculture. That's yeah. pastoralism. Yeah, and I don't think you're saying we can't grow anything that's an annual, like some peppers or tomatoes or stuff like that. But they have to fit into a perennial-based system as part of the niche because there are an all annuals will reproduce with seeding and 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 act perennial like in the right environment. What you're talking about is basically no-till technology. Because every time we till the soil, we kill what's in there. We and people say, "Well, why does it work?" Well, because if I took a thousand dead fish and stuck them in a thousand square feet of growing space, stuff's going to grow really good for that year because I'm growing on dead bodies. Well, when we till soil, we kill everything in that soil, and then we grow on their dead bodies. But that process, if we're not bringing new things back to replace the life, is is finite, and then we have to go to chemicals. Yeah, it's drawdown. I mean, right now, the world is essentially out of topsoil. All of the major grain-growing regions of the world are dead, okay? <laughs> it's over, and they were dead by 1950. And what we've been eating since then is fossil fuel. You're exactly right. There's a chemical process called the Haber-Bosch process, which was developed during World War I, essentially how to make nitrogen, usable nitrogen. And it's incredibly energy-intensive, and it also uses natural gas as a feedstock. So... Applying a lot of energy to gas means you can get nitrogen out of it. And while fossil fuel was cheap and easy, nobody much thought about it. It was like, great, we'll just make fertilizer. We've used up the soil. Oh, well, we can move on to this now. The problem is it's drawdown. I think most people listening to your show get the concept of peak oil, right? It's here. Absolutely. We, we peak, you know, like we're on the downside now of that curve, and it's not going to be pretty. Um, and one of the problems is, is that for the last 50 years, we've been eating fossil fuel. Because we destroyed the soil, because for 10,000 years we've been destroying the soil, and it's basically all gone. Um, and so the hope that I see with things like, you know, the, the, the methods that Jill Salatin uses and the, the kinds of things that the permaculturists suggest, um, it, it means restoring that land to some kind of perennial, that permanent cover that the perennials provide and the nutrient cycling that happens naturally that the plants and the plant roots and the bacteria do. You have to have animals in those systems or it doesn't work. They they Must. have a very essential job to play. You cannot have a functioning prairie without ruminants, for instance. It's just not, it dies. Literally, it's dead. You will get a desert at the end of the day if you don't have ruminants. So there's no way to take animals out of the picture. Because they um, recycle the nutrient. That's their job. They take the grass that's, that's grown to a certain state, they consume it, they digest it, they process it, they manure back. 
And, you know, when I look at how people are doing sustainable beef now, they're doing very high-density, rapid paddock rotation. And you look at that as an outsider and go, well, the cows are all kind of close together. But if we look at the way the bison moved, that's their natural predatory defense mechanism is to be close together. So it's how the natural system functioned. That's exactly right. And um, the the wonderful thing about grass-fed beef, um, just from an economic perspective, um, and I get this from their journal. The, you know, there's a, a whole journal for grass-fed um, farmers, and they talk about how, as long as you're, you know, you're smart enough about how you do this, the very first year, a grass-based farm can turn a profit. That's an extraordinary statement. Um, that is. That the, you know, the farmers now trying to do wheat or corn or soy will never make a profit. They only keep their heads above water because of the subsidies from the federal government. So they're dependent on handouts forever, no matter how how hard they work. They they can never make it happen. But if they can switch to grass, if we can provide the demand and the market for them, um, the very first year they've got enough money, and in five years, ten years, you know, they've got enough to pay off their mortgage. They've got enough for the kids, you know, college. They've got enough for retirement. They can actually live an honorable life, making a product that people need, restoring their land. Um, you know, and that's what farmers want to do is provide food. So to me, it seems that's the obvious direction we need to go. And obviously we've got some, you know, some pretty big hurdles to get over, both in terms of public awareness, in terms of government, you know, the, where the subsidies are going, all the wrong things are being subsidized in terms of government regulation, like Joel Salatin talks about. Um, but this can be done. I mean, I've watched this movement over the last 10 years and we've made so much progress. So I don't think that this is a hopeless situation at all. I, I agree with that. I think more and more people are becoming aware. I'm seeing an, an uptick in, in, in urban farming and urban ranching and people growing their own food and, and understanding where their food comes from. When, when you grow your own food, you're not going to abuse it because you know you've got to eat it. Um, and I, I think that there's, there's is something to be definitely gained there. But you said at the beginning you, you were deep into the vegetarian lifestyle at one time. What was the transition like for you health-wise? How did your feeling, you know, day-to-day change as you started to eat more meats and, and let go of that? Well, the, the reason that I gave up being a vegan was because my health failed really catastrophically. And, you know, in my case, I, I did it too long. There's, I mean, I'm going to, I'm wrecked. I mean, there's not, there's only so much the body can repair. I, it, 20 years is too long and I, it, I should have known better, but I was very young and idealistic and, the other thing is, you know, when you go to the doctor and you present your, you know, I mean, I have some very serious health problems. There wasn't a single one of them that said, well, what do you eat? What's your diet like? They, they, they're not trained in nutrition at all. And if they were trained in nutrition, it would be, frankly, completely the wrong thing. Um, because we know the kinds of, you know, the, the way that the, oh, the American Dietetic Association and all the, all the big professional organizations are really in the pockets of, um, you know, the, the grain cartels at this point in corporate America. So even if they did get nutritional training, it wouldn't be the right kind. That's shifting a little bit, but um, not enough. So even if somebody had had you know nutritional advice for me, it would have been the wrong thing. Um, so I, I didn't really. In fact, know they would have probably said, "Well, you're a vegetarian. Well, you have to work." It's not that's not the problem. Let's, let's yeah, exactly. look at something else. It wasn't until you know everything had sort of come apart on me, and I had to you know try to educate myself about. And there could not be a more compelling reason than I'm in chronic pain. You know, my life has been pretty well destroyed by this pain. What am I going to do? You know, those were, it was very compelling for me to try to find an answer. Like, how did this all go wrong? So I started to just do a lot more investigating and reading. And once you kind of break out of the vegan bubble world, 
there was tons of information to be had. I just hadn't looked for it before that. I thought that I knew. I thought I was doing the right thing. Um, and it wasn't until I was really desperate that I was able to kind of let that ideology go and let new information in. So it was a very difficult transition. I don't think it's easy for anyone. Um, I get a lot of emails from people who are in that position where they know their bodies are, are eroding, that their health is being destroyed. But it's so hard to think about eating meat again. And it was one of the hardest things I ever did. It was one of the worst days of my life. But uh, it was the, the results were pretty instantaneous for me. And for some people, it may take a little longer. But I felt better in about five seconds. And that is not an exaggeration. Wow. And I've, I've heard other people write about this as well. I've heard other people talk about it, that you're at this point of just profound exhaustion. And you put that bite of food in your mouth and you swallow it. And it's like you've been plugged into a wall socket. You know, you suddenly have energy that you didn't even know you were missing. Um, and one woman said, oh, God, I felt like I was coming out of a coma. And that's what it was like for me. And there was, there was no denying it. I mean, the experience was so profound. Um, so some of my health problems have, have gotten better. I have recovered from quite a number of the problems that I had, but some of it is serious and, and permanent. I have a degenerative disease, and I also have an autoimmune disease. So these are diseases of agriculture. These are what are called the diseases of civilization. And I got some of them from eating those foods and nothing else. So I'm kind of living proof that this doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, you can look at the bones from 10,000 years ago, or you can just look at my x-rays, and you'll see the same thing. So... Um, <laughs> I, I try to be a, you know, a, a, an example to the, the young and the idealistic to say you, you don't actually need to try this yourself. You can, you can just talk to me about how bad it got, um, and you don't need to make my mistakes. So, um, yeah, it's not an easy transition, though, and I, I, and I have all sympathy for people who, who are you know, going through this because it's a bad day, and there's, you just have to do it and, and get used to it. I, I've been amazed how similar the stories are from so many people that are on this side of this movement now saying, you've been lied to, this isn't the way. Almost everyone that makes it like a crusade wasn't just a believer in the standard American diet. They were either a vegan or a vegetarian. And, and they always have a similar story. Rob Wolf's story, he did it for far less time than you did, so it's nowhere near as bad. But it's the same story. I was sick, I was weak, I was tired. I changed, and overnight it was better. It wasn't as good as, and in his case, he said you know, it got better over time, but it, it's almost an immediate change. Personally, I used to get very shaky and sweaty and irritable from hypoglycemia. And I haven't been that way a day since I stopped doing that. I, if I would go three or four hours without eating something, and you wonder why you get fat, I would right. get that way. So you had to constantly eat. Yesterday I was telling my wife when I got home from the office, it's 3 o'clock. I haven't eaten today. I'm not hungry. Yeah. And I was completely blown away myself by that realization. I'm like, I could eat, but I don't have to. And it's, I think you end up, you're eating higher caloric per unit food, but you end up eating less food. Well, and that's the insulin. Like you say, it's the hypoglycemia or the hyperinsulinemia. And people really need to understand this cycle because it explains so much if you're going through it that, you know, you put food in your mouth it's food that is essentially sugar. Okay, they're going to try to tell you that there's the bad, you know, simple carbohydrates and then the good complex carbohydrates. People, it's just sugar. At the end of the day, every last molecule is broken down in your guts and then absorbed into your bodies. And when it, once it hits your bloodstream, it is just sugar. And to eat according to that food pyramid, food plate, whatever, 
Um, you know, it's, it's equivalent to eating two cups of sugar a day. The human right. body was never meant to handle that much sugar. So you're on constant overload. Uh, every time you eat, you know, your body has to release all this insulin to try to take care of it. Sugar is poison, ultimately, in your blood. You, your brain can only function at a very narrow range of blood sugar. If it's too high or too low, you'll literally die, as diabetics well know. Um, so too much, and it's just it's just poison. So it's an emergency response. This is not what it's supposed to be like day after day. Your, your pancreas releases the insulin, and the insulin grabs onto the sugar and shoves it into your fat cells as fast as it can to get it out of your bloodstream. And day after day after day, you know, when, when you're, you've trained your body to release insulin every time you eat, um, you know, you, you're going to wear out those receptors on your cells because it's just too much. So now you're insulin resistant. So every time you eat, you need more insulin. And then that wears out your receptors even more. So now you need more insulin. And eventually you end up diabetic. And from there, a type 2 diabetic, you can even end up a type 1 diabetic where your pancreas just gives out and stops producing it at all. Um, and many, that's the cycle that you're on. How many of these modern diseases do you feel are related almost directly to inflammation caused by this process? Oh, lots and lots and lots of them. Because um, it may be a, a slightly longer chain than just inflammation directly. But, for instance, you know, I said I had an autoimmune disease. And one of the things that causes that is that it's the inflammation in the guts. When your guts are inflamed, the tight junctions are no longer tight. And the tight junctions are the very surface of the, the cells on your, the, the lining of the gut. And they have to fit together very tightly because think about food. I mean, you're taking you know, an outside entity of some sort and you're sticking it in your body. And you know, your, your gut lining is where all kinds of you know, bacterians and toxins and, you know, funguses and God knows what all is coming through in your food supply and your body needs to keep most of them out. It can only absorb the ones that are going to be good for you, right? So it's part of your immune system. And one of the ways it does that is by having those what are called tight junctions. Um, but the tight junctions need to open a little bit to let in the things that your body decides is food. So they need to be able to open and close. They need to fit together really smoothly. Um, the moment that there's inflammation, of course, the junctions stop fitting together tightly. And now all kinds of strange substances are going to get into your bloodstream, and your body is going to recognize them as foreign invaders and try to kill them or remove them. And this is the problem with autoimmune diseases. Once you've got that inflammation, now you've got leaky gut. Instead of tight junctions, they're leaky. Um, all kinds of foreign proteins are going to get in through there, and your immune system gets confused because a lot of those foreign proteins look like the tissues that are in other places in your body. And your immune system can't tell what's me, what's not me. This looks like an invader. Oh, but it also looks like, you know, the tissue of your joints. And that's called rheumatoid arthritis. Um, or it looks like your heart. Or it looks like brain tissue. Or it looks like your thyroid gland, which I've got Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid autoimmune disease. And so your poor immune system doesn't know what to do. It's supposed to protect you, but it can't tell anymore who's me, who's not me. And you end up with all these attacks on your own tissues. Um, and it starts with that inflammation. And the things that inflame the gut are um, essentially grain is, for many, many reasons, is very inflammatory to the gut. Um, first of all, it's like a Brillo pad, all that fiber. It's not a good kind of fiber for us to be eating. So just mechanically, it's an irritant. Um, another problem with grain, and this is true for all seeds, they're way, it's way too high in, in omega-6 fatty acids. And omega-3s, omega-6s 
it gets a little complicated, but it is worth finding out about this stuff. Um, right now in America, there are people whose omega-3 levels are so low they can't be measured. Um, and omega-3 fats are um, absolutely essential to health. Now, you can't produce them. You can only eat them. And if you're not getting any, you, you cannot be healthy. You will end up with one of these disease processes or another. And the omega-3s help calm inflammation. And the omega-6s create inflammation. You need them in the right balance. But because we're eating agricultural agricultural foods and this agriculturally-based diet, heavy in grain, there are way too many omega-6s in the, in the average American's diet, like 20 times more than we should have. And that's not an exaggeration. And they create inflammation. So in your guts, they create inflammation. Um, ultimately, they end up creating inflammation in, in your blood vessels. And this is what causes heart disease, is that inflammation in your blood vessels. You know, your blood I vessels completely are, agree pressure. with that. Yeah, they yeah. talk about cholesterol, but if, you're, if your blood vessel walls weren't damaged and inflamed, uh, and one of the leading things that causes that is homocysteine, right. uh, there would be no way for the cholesterol to attach itself. If you, if you gave a, a young child like a tablespoon of pure lard, it, it would slide through the blood vessels as though there was nothing there. It wouldn't adhere to anything. Yeah, I mean, cholesterol is the body's repair substance. So the reason that you have placking in your arteries is because there's a leak there. You know, there's some kind of injury. And the cholesterol is the patch. It's trying to fix it. Um, if you didn't have cholesterol doing that, you would spring a leak and die. So the cholesterol is doing you a favor. <laughs> By trying to patch that. The question is, is, it's the underlying question, what created the injury to your blood vessels? It's not cholesterol's fault that it's trying to keep you alive. Be thankful to your cholesterol for doing that for you. But what created that injury in the first place? Why is there a wound in your blood vessel? And the answer is because the high omega-6s you know, that come from that agricultural diet, um, and even if you're somebody who's eating meat or even a lot of meat, um, you might not be eating the right ratio of omega-6s even still. And the reason is because if you're eating factory farmed meat, um, the problem is that if the animals are being fed largely a diet of grain, that puts the ratio off completely as well um, for the same reason, because that grain is too high in omega-6s. So it affects the animal's health. So it affects their meat and their milk and their eggs. And then we eat those products. And again, it's still way too high in omega-6s. You've got to search out the good stuff if you really want to be healthy. And that means finding a farmer somewhere in your region who is doing grass-based farming. Um, cows should not eat anything but grass. That is what they are designed for. If you feed them grain, it kills them, and ultimately those products will kill you. And, and the largest picture of all, it will ultimately kill the planet. So for every reason you could want, we've got to search out the good farmers and support them with every dime that, that we've got. And the best website for this is called eatwild.com. And the okay. woman's name is Joe Robinson is the woman's name. She's got a wonderful book as well um, about pasture-raised meat and why it's so good and how it could help restore the planet and what it does for human health. But her website is wonderful because you can click on any state in the United States and there's a list of all the grass-based farmers. So you can right away find somebody in your location who's doing this the right way. And it's eatwild.com. And I, well, definitely I can't recommend it highly enough. I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes along with a link to your site as well. Um, my, my, my kind of final question for you is, you know, looking at the video I saw you with Janae, you say you stuff some health problems, you look pretty daggone healthy to me. You look <laughs> thin, you. you look lean, you look good, right? So what do you eat? Well, I mean, if somebody came to you and said, what, what should I eat? What is, what is a typical daily menu like for you? 
Uh, I usually start the day with homemade chicken broth, and I cannot recommend broth highly enough. Uh, bone broth is one of those traditional foods that almost everybody around the globe eats. You know, there, there's the studies of the healthy populations that were able to produce disease-free um, people generation after generation, and this goes back to Weston Price. If you're if your if your listeners don't know about Weston Price, you should. It, just in a nutshell, he was a dentist in the 1930s who traveled the world because he 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 had a suspicion that what was creating all these health problems was this transition to this modern industrial diet, and and he was right. And he went around the world and he, he attempted to find a healthy population on every continent, you know, who could produce disease-free people, you know, year after year after year. And at that point in the 30s, they still existed. Um, by now, this it would be a lot harder to do this now because almost everybody's been engulfed by the Borg. But then they still existed. And so he spent time with all of them. He and his wife, Flora, she was a nurse. And they took all kinds of notes on what people ate. They sent back samples to his lab in Ohio. And then he analyzed it all. He's like, what is the same about these groups? Because, of course, the macronutrient um, uh, ratios were totally different. I mean, people who live in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland are going to eat a totally different diet than people in Central Africa, and yet they produce these healthy populations. So what was the same? And this was the brilliance of this man. He figured out the pattern, and the pattern was the animal fats, essentially, that the, the nutrients that are in animal fats are the ones that are absolutely primary to human health. So vitamin A, vitamin D, and vitamin K2. And at that point, K2 hadn't yet been discovered in the lab, but he knew there was a third one. He thought that he, he had a feeling that A and D weren't enough. There was a third, something else was going on as well, and he was right. It's probably K2. But these are really only available in animal products and the animal fats in particular. And in all of these um, cultures, what was prized was the animal fats. Um, a lot of the muscle meat is left for the dogs. You know, the people don't eat that. It's the animal fat, and they understand that that's how you stay healthy, that you have to eat those. And they didn't have microscopes, but they figured it out. And so, so, and another thing that they ate a lot of was bone broth. And the reason is because it's a huge amount of minerals. So he discovered that they had at least 10 times as many minerals in their diets. And this has become especially true now that people are eating things like, you know, white flour day after day. There are no minerals in that diet. Um, so bone broth. I start every day with bone broth. I make it myself from chicken. You could use any bones you want. If you like beef, make beef broth. Fish broth is fabulous too. I happen to prefer chicken, so I make chicken broth. So I have chicken broth. I have eggs that I get also from a local grass-based farm. You will know a good egg when you get one. It will be an experience like no other. There's no going back once you eat real eggs because the yolks are like they're orange. They're the most beautiful color. They're like day glow color, and they, they have a a wonderful texture and shape. They stand up. They're not all like runny and weird and flat. You can't believe what you were eating once you eat a real egg. So I eat my eggs and, and do not take the yolks out and, and this crazy stuff about eating, you know, egg whites only. Forget that. The nutrition is in the yolk. That's where the vitamin A is, the vitamin D, the choline, the cholesterol. It's all in those beautiful yolks. So I eat egg yolks every morning, eggs. Um, and then usually for lunch I have grass-fed beef. Or I also have pasture-raised pork that I'm able to get locally. Um, and then I usually have vegetables as well um, in either one or both of those meals. Of course, I try to source things locally because it makes me happy, but a lot of times it's just not possible depending on what your local, you know, what your local agricultural sector, um, how healthy it is will, will depend on, you know, that, that'll, that'll be what that depends on. But um, I don't eat a lot of fruit, and I, and I really avoid sugar at all costs. And, you know, like you, I got very hypoglycemic on that diet, and that's one of those permanent things. I think if you're young, you can probably turn the clock back on that. 
you know, once you stop eating that level of sugar every day, but for some of us, it's, it's a done deal. So I have to be really careful about uh, the amount of carbohydrate that I eat every day. So my, my diet is really based on broth, meat, eggs. I do eat some dairy. I know some people who are paleolithic eaters avoid dairy, but I have found that it really works for me. Um, and I think that's just a personal decision. I would suggest that if you're going to eat dairy products, that the, the milk has to be respected, the cows have to be respected, um, and that means that you know the dairy products have to come from cows that are only grass-fed, again, no grain in their diets, and that the milk has to be raw. And that's really key for a couple of reasons. One is that the process of pasteurization, uh, it's way too hot for the milk, and the proteins in milk are really beautiful, but they're very fragile. And the moment that you apply heat, they're destroyed. And it, those proteins will turn into substances that humans just don't really know how to digest. We've never seen them before in our genetic history. And it, it can lead to all kinds of disease processes. But if you're eating milk that's raw and you're eating cheese made from raw milk as well, you don't have that problem. Also, the enzymes that are in the milk are incredibly important for assimilation. Um, a lot of people who think they're lactose intolerant, in fact, are not. And if they can get raw milk, they, real, they, they often discover that it's fine. They don't have any problems with it. Um, but I want to repeat again, not everybody can do dairy, and I understand that. I, I'm one of the lucky ones. I think there's been a lot of dairy um, sort of in, my, you know, in my, my ancestral history for quite a while. I'm mostly Northern European, and, you know, there's a lot of dairy. So I, my, I have a degenerative disease of the spine, and I found that my spine really responds to dairy products in, in a good way. Um, there is um, a substance in, in raw dairy products that's um, called the Wolzen factor, and that's specifically an anti-stiffness factor for joints. And I think that's probably the reason that raw milk and, and raw butter and cheeses, it really helps my pain level. Um, so it's something to investigate if you have joint problems. It, it may, in fact, be good for you. But I'll leave that, you know, to, the, to everybody to decide for themselves. And I, I know food is very personal. Um, anyway, so I, and then I, I eat sort of raw dairy products as a, sort of an adjunct. Um, on occasion, I eat nuts. I don't eat a lot of nuts because of the omega-6 problem. They're too high in omega-6s. And I had discovered just from my own eating that if I if I do too many of those, that I will find that my body is inflaming, my pain level goes up pretty directly. It'll take two or three days, and it's like, okay, i got to cut back on the almonds again because it's just hurting too much. And so, you know, my own body is sort of a good barometer for what works for me. It responds pretty quickly because I'm, you know, wounded. But for some people, there might be more allowance for these things. Um, that's pretty much what I eat, a little fruit. I'm not a big fruit eater, so I don't, it's not something that I really crave. I make yogurt sometimes from, from the raw milk, um, and that's another important thing is lacto-fermented food that throughout you know, our, our long history as human beings, most cultures have some kind of fermented food. So it's really important to get that in there, the um, very, very friendly bacteria. And you know, our bodies are really communities of living creatures. There's not really an I when you get down to it. We actually have more bacteria in our bodies than the number of human cells that there are. Okay, there's more bacteria than there are us in our bodies. And that is a freaky thing to lie awake at night and think about. But we need to be replenishing that bacteria all the time. And that means doing things like eating lacto-fermented food. Those are really friendly bacteria. Um, you know, without them, if you sterilize your guts, you're dead. I mean, we would not survive without them. So it's a really good thing just to keep those populations, you know, up and healthy. So lacto-fermented foods of any kind, that means sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, yogurt, whatever it is that appeals to you. Learn how to make it, make your own. It's not hard. And that will keep that bacterial community really healthy and will keep you healthy in return. 
that's pretty much the rundown on what I eat. I love chocolate, so that's like my big downfall. Uh, <laughs> I know some people love coffee. You know, we've all got something, so I, yeah. you know, I try to keep it to a minimum, but that's my big treat. Probably once a week I'll eat some chocolate. Yeah, we do the dark chocolate, and I am a coffee drinker. But that, you know, it sounds very similar uh, to the way that I eat. I'm maybe a little heavier on the on the actual meat side of things and a little less on the eggs and dairy, but uh, I eat those as well. And I try to, like you say, eat natural-sourced products from local producers as much as I can. And uh, it's getting easier because more and more people are doing it. But uh, this has been a great interview. Uh, you want to tell folks how they can find out more about you, read your blog, get your book, stuff like that? Well, it would be easy, except you have to know how to spell my name. So my website is just, it's my name, LierKeith.com. So if you remember Pierre with an L, uh, you'll probably find it easier. It's L-I-E-R-R-E, and then K-E-I-T-H is the last name, LierKeith.com. If you just type in vegetarian myth, you'll find me, and that might be easier for people. So if you go to my website, you can find my books, you can find my speaking schedule, If you want to hear me talk, um, interviews, all kinds of radio interviews you can listen to whenever you want to. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much all about me. And um, the other websites to think about are westonprice.org, which is the best nutritional advice available in the world. And then Eat Wild, where to get it. Um, and, And that should keep people busy. Very cool. Uh, and I will make sure I put a link to your blog and those two websites in the show notes for today's show. And I really appreciate you being here with us. And if you ever have something uh, going on you want to come back and talk about that's new, you'll always be welcome back here. Well, thank you for all your work. Without people like you doing the podcasts and the newsletters and all this, this movement would never spread. And it's every time somebody does a show like this, that's one life we might save. And I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, hyperbolic, but it is really true. This food is killing us. I completely agree. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Pierre Keith, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you.